With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to this Scene podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week, the return, the long-awaited return of snooker player Bingo. Now, if you haven't heard this before, it's very simple. I write down, and in this case, Phil Yates also wrote down a list of players. They've each got a number. We pick a number and we just talk about the players. Although the twist this time is that they're not all players, as you'll find out in listening. It was myself and Phil, Neil Folds as well. And Alan McManus joined us. He had to go and do some filming for ITV because we were at the Champion Champions in Coventry. But he joined us for a few reminiscences as well. So settle back and enjoy the latest segment, the latest instalment of Snooker Player Bingo. OK, and the first thing to say is I haven't checked back anyone we've done before. So if there's any repetition, I couldn't be bothered to check. So if there's any repetition, then sorry. That's the disclaimer. What's the worst thing that can happen? Someone gets... Someone gets killed, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. That's probably the worst thing that could happen. Anyway, um, so Neil, you're going to pick one from Phil's list. Two. Lloyd Annandale. Ah, referee. And Hello. indeed a player in his day. He, he partnered Stephen Hendry to, you'd know this, Alan, to the Scottish something. Doubles or yeah. something, yeah. Um, I've actually got a story about Laurie. Um, after we, uh, we won the World Cup in '96, we... Um, Laurie, being a keen golfer, he organised a, a club called Thornton Golf Club in Scotland. He, he organised, they, they were, it was a centenary year, so they were building a new clubhouse. So we got myself, Stephen, and John, this so called dream team nonsense. Mm. Um, it wasn't ten, nonsense, it wasn't dream yeah, well, t- t- 21 years ago today, apparently, as we record this now. Really? Well, I, I didn't just know saw that, that on, online, yeah. Anyway. I didn't know that, yeah. I connect. But yeah. uh, so we. Um, we went up and played a game of golf and opened the club, and we actually got a lifetime membership to the golf club, which is a pretty cool thing to have for any place. And I, and I still go golfing there today. But um, Laurie, I it, actually when I first turned, played amateur snooker, which would have been winter of '87 or something, and uh, December '87, my first tournament I played there. Laurie was the Scottish secretary of the Scottish Builders of Snooker Association. And then he eventually, obviously professional referee and blah 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 you know but lovely guy he's still in Scotland I believe he's back in Rosyth he loves a uh, good guy he, he I think he's the only referee who's ever stopped a fight on the floor of the Crucible which yeah. was between Quinton and Andy Hicks yeah. 
when they had that bad tempered row which led to the fight with Quinzenand with Mark King. And he had to get between them, I mean, he had to literally <laughs> stop them I don't inflicting think, harm. I don't think I've ever seen a referee, and I've seen him referee hundreds of matches. He never made a mistake. I can honestly say I never saw him involved in any kind of controversy. The players have absolute total respect for his abilities to, you know, to officiate the game. But of course, his other uh, hidden talent was putting on tips. Yeah. Stephen yeah. Hendry flew him to Belgium <coughs> specifically. Yeah. He, he went. He had a day trip in Belgium. He flew from, I think it was Edinburgh to Antwerp. Put the tip on and went back home. And Hendry won the tournament. Another brief story. You're right. And I don't know. As someone who's a bit of a Q doctor, a fettler. Is that the word? It's, I think it's let's good. go with it. Yeah. Uh, let's go. Let's see. <laughs> a cue fettler. So anyway, but Laurie had a hut out in his back garden with a lathe in it and blah 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 and for doing all the cue stuff. And it was him who taught me how to put a tip on properly mm-hmm. with the with just a Stan, a Stanley blade, not the knife, not the handle, just the blade, little pieces of you know wool and sandpaper and all that. And he was brilliant at it. And so then Stephen being cue fettlers are uh, Laurie Andel, Fraser Patrick, Fraser. <coughs> Les Dodd. Well, I think a fettler would be someone who actually does put ferals and not just the tips. It's not a word though. You made that <laughs> I up. think it could be. I think it could be. What's that be, program? Is it Robert Robinson? What is a fettler? <laughs> You'd be busy getting Robert Robinson to decide if this is right or not. <laughs> it's worth looking up in the dictionary, but I, just, well, so I don't think it's in there. Personally. Well, okay. Well, it might be now after this. Well, yeah. It could be one of the words of two eighteen. Yeah, 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 yeah. The other thing he used to do was dive all <laughs> along with banks. <laughs> His great role was making everybody in the press room laugh because he was he was a sort of faux sort of annoyed all the time yeah. an old curmudgeon and he used to play up to it he used to make us laugh so much yeah it was really good really good value yeah. well what he used to do because in those days to get the the match sheets he used to have to print them off and hand them round and he would come round shouting slave to the press slave to the press <laughs> pretending like he did it was just, just an effort even though he was being employed <laughs> yeah. basically to run the press office yeah. he couldn't be bothered to get up and do it well what about the time what about the time when you were working for the WPBSA and you went business and yeah. he, he went economy he took that well he took that well <laughs> <laughs> he was only assistant tournament director but anyway let's, let's move on uh, so Alan pick a number between one and seven uh, six well he's not a play, player but in many ways he is a player it's Barry Hearn who, of course, is running the game. Um, the thing about Barry, I mean, I think a lot of people think that he started snooker when he met Steve, but he was running snooker clubs before then. He's actually, you know, was and very successfully. At a time when snooker clubs weren't, you know, de rigueur. I mean, mm. back then there were snooker halls. Snooker clubs as such became popular, mm. very popular all the country over, after the 80s explosion in interest. So... Back then, it was quite a, a sort of niche place, and he made those uh, Lucana uh, clubs very, very successful, didn't he? The first sporting person he ever took on was my dad before Steve uh-huh. Davis. Yeah, you know, he he won the first Lucania uh, tournament at Rumford. My dad represented the Lucania club in Southall, uh, and then they went on a tour. There was a tour that um, my dad was involved in, and, and he still says to this day that my dad was the first. Never mind all these boxers, these glamorous mm. boxers and all this, mm. and mm. Steve, but my dad mm. was the first sort of person he worked as an agent for, and that's a long time ago. I've known him for so many years, and he's never changed. He's always been this amazingly um, entrepreneurial, full of energy. Mm. Lots of stories with Barry, you know, mm. lots of stories. I mean, even... From my own point of view, I came out of my time with Barry a year early, but we've never had a, a one cross word. You know, I get on great with him. He's, um, he's a great bloke. He's a great bloke. There's, there's, you could speak a long time about Barry. Mm. And very down to earth. You know, he will speak to anyone the same way, won't he? He'll just take the mickey out of everybody, basically, and put you at ease, I guess, doing that. 
Well, he's quite obviously a multi-millionaire, and he's a very big player in world sport now, especially with the advent of Anthony Joshua. And if he came in here now, he'd, oh, you know, he's just so easily approachable and such a nice guy. And I have to say this, we have a laugh and a joke on this, but just for a, a moment, what he's done for snooker has been phenomenal. I mean, how anybody could possibly complain about what he's done for snooker? He's taken it from the gutter in terms of its financial and uh, sort of economic stand, uh, you know, standing uh, in the world of sport, and now it's going right up there. I mean, tournaments every week for big money. He's, he's performed miracles. Just uh, sorry, sorry, big man. Um, Neil said earlier about he's not changed. He's always the same. I had just a quick story about him. I think it was about ninety-two. Um, I went down and had a meeting with him. It was a, it was actually at the press conference for the Watson Eubank fight. Um, it was at the Grosvenor House Hotel in London. Anyway, Reg Gutteridge and all these people. Anyway, so goes down, has a meeting with him. He was going to sign us up to do whatever the snooker guys did with him. And uh, I d- it didn't, you know, I'm a Glasgow guy. He was London, da da da. And it was a nice conversation, a nice meeting, and then at the end of it, I said, "Look, Barry, thanks," but I says, "But no thanks. I'm just going to go my separate ways." And he, he shook my hand, he says, ah, good on you, son, and blah, 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 and listen, you know, no hard thing, and he's always been great with us. I had a nice game of golf with him, actually, last year at Lockwood. If you took everything away from from Barry right now, his family, his home, all his money, and just threw him in a field somewhere, he would, within six months, be a millionaire again. (laughs) Everything. He'd find a way of turning everything around. Not that anyone's ever going to do that. Well, let's hope not. Let's hope not. What what I can't understand is how is it that he does not have an honour at all? You know, you look at all the people in sport and in business and everything else that have... MBEs, OBEs, even knighthoods, he's got nothing. And what he's done across a range of sports, totally. I, don't, I don't know anyone else in British sport who's done what he's done, actually. Well, t- I mean, I, 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 what he's done for snooker, actually, there are still a few people that you see on social media who, who think otherwise, but uh, that's, to me, ridiculous, and I agree with all you guys about it. Uh, I didn't think he could possibly achieve what he has in snooker, and snooker was struggling badly at the time, <coughs> and everyone was waiting for the day when he'd come back in, and look at the tour now. It's, it's totally different to what it's ever been. Well, it's miraculous what he's done. If you were working in a factory, and then all of a sudden a boss came in, and he increased your wages by 50, 60, 70%, You'd think it was the best thing since sliced bread, so I cannot understand the criticism. Okay, there's the old minutiae of schedule and stuff like that people don't like, but you know the the core of the game has never been healthier. Yeah, my last words on him is he, he really believes in hard work. You know, he works hard, he expects mm. someone else to work hard. And you look at uh, the the people that have been, you know, who part of Matram actually. They've been there years. I mean, obviously Sharon Totally is no longer uh, with Barry, but because she went over to immigrate, I think, to New Zealand. But she was with uh, Barry for years, and I went over to his offices last year. And there were people there when I was still with with Barry, who were still working there. So he's very loyal to them as well. And you come to these, we're at Coventry at the moment, at the Champion of Champions. And every time you come to a matchroom event, whether it's pool or snooker, it's just such a, a warm atmosphere and so efficiently run. And you just really look forward to it. Every single one we do the Championship League, don't we? We, we do. do. Yeah. You know, they look after you so well. And obviously, the people who work for Barry are very similar to him. You know, just very approachable and, and just nice people. Okay. Well, uh, let's. Uh, I think uh, you speak up a bit because I don't think Luke Richards from Matchroom could actually hear that. He's just <laughs> yeah, still over there. Anyway, um, so have you got your list still, Phil? Yeah, I have. Okay, so I'm going to choose one. I'm going to choose number two off your list. Number two is one second. Okay. Well, that's Laurie. Oh, All right. Okay, yeah. that's that one. Well, we'll have number three then. Number three, Francois Ellis. <laughs> wow, South I've got no, I've got nothing there. No, I'm not much on that because <laughs> I, I think that um, South African snooker was um, 
when when I was around, I mean, I, I saw him play. I didn't know much about him, but there were a few group of South African snooker players pre uh, uh, Silvino and Peter Francisco, and they you kind of didn't quite know how good they were. He well, he was a fair player, wasn't he? But I remember Jimmy Van Rensburg more, but I don't know too much about him. But there was a few that were a few of the guys from London and from from England were, were looking around, and these guys. South Africa because we know what they're like at all sports and to be honest I found them a lot of them at that point before the Peter and Silvino uh, came into the game uh, they weren't quite as good as I expected them to be you know? but no. I remember I did see him play yeah well I, I used to write for the South African obviously so I used to cover all the South Africans that's why I know him so well I don't think he ever qualified for a venue but he came very very close it was for the European Open and he was playing Eddie Charlton and he went 3-1 up Sadly, no footage exists. No, no footage exists, <laughs> apart from in my mind. Yeah, yeah. The psychiatry uh, session yeah. stopped six yeah. months ago. But, um, yeah, but he was, <laughs> he was 3 1 up at the mid session interval. Playing all right, and after the interval, Eddie, he's, to say he was in a bad temper is just the understatement of all time. His language wasn't blue, it was purple. I mean, <laughs> and he was, oh, he was so annoyed. But anyway, he just about got through. But the, the amazing thing with Ellis was he played in all the qualifiers because they were in blocks then by taking uh, his leave because he was a serving member of the South African military and he was on like the border of all these hot spots in, in, in Africa and then he'd, he'd sort of, okay, well, see you lads, I'll be back in three weeks and, you know, change from his uh, khakis into his waistcoat and come over and play Blackpool in the qualifiers. It was just an amazing you, story. You've dug a name out there from, really, you've gone yeah. deep, dug very deep. <laughs> you'd even, you'd even struggle to find him on Q-Tracker. That's how obscure he is. No, don't exaggerate. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. well, okay, uh, have you got, that's it for him? Or you that's, that's about it, Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. So, Neil, you choose one of mine. Uh, one to seven. We've had six. I'll have the seventh. Well, Luca Brussel, now we're recording mm. this, this will go out after the end of the Champion Champions, so we don't know. At the moment he's in the semi-finals, but obviously he's won a tournament this year and I guess he's what the game's been looking for a new star and a new star from a part of the world where we haven't seen many stars yeah I mean I, I've this this season I've spent a little bit of time actually with Luca for the first time you know I'm probably 20 odd years older than him but uh, 20 years older um, but uh, <coughs> I spent some time at the pool with him actually in India recently and he's a really nice laddie um, I think he's come out of shell I don't. I think when he first came on tour when he was he struggled with mm language and, and maybe one or two other things. His dad actually used to go all the, all the tournaments, but he no longer does, which is good. And he's good mates with Alex Ersenbacher, who started becoming, showing signs of being a, a real good player. So he's kind of got a little buddy on mm. tour, which, mm. you know, he, being from mainland Europe, it's, it's, it's different, isn't it? But for him, you know, it's, it must be hard. And he's made century breaks left-handed when he, well, even uh, when he was yeah. school age. Which is a bit unusual, isn't it? Really, right-handed right. player. Um, and I, I remember uh, quite a lot. Of the early stage of social media, media he used to send messages to people like myself and, and uh, just talking about the matches. He loved talking about mm. snooker. And but well, I met him for the first time. He didn't say a lot. I mean, it's quite strange. You know, very able to communicate via social media. Then he didn't say a Very shy. He's come out of his show. He's tremendous, uh, tremendous for the game. I've got, and he's got that swagger about him now, isn't he? Mm. Now he's won a ranking event. He's got something that makes him an extremely dangerous player. And even in uh, the tournament that we are currently at, as you said, the, the champion champions, just the way he walks around the table, he is truly enjoying playing on the mm. snooker table. Not everyone does. Mm. There are flair players and flamboyant players, entertaining players, but he is all three plus unpredictable. He's all like Tony Drago in that respect. You yes. never know. There's what, a link there. Yeah, I can you see never it. know quite what he's going to do, and I think he's absolutely phenomenal for the game, especially because of where he's from. 
as you say, you've got Ersenbacher now from Switzerland, you've got him from Belgium. Suddenly, continental Europe has got two, you know, really top-class players, and it couldn't have come at a better time. All we need now is a couple of really good players from Germany, and we're away. He, he, he certainly studied the game when he was younger, because when he was a teenager, he recorded every match from the World Championship and watched them all. Back to, even the bad ones he watched back back to back which takes a lot of that discipline takes a lot of doing and, but I suppose it's one way of learning you know I mean mm. if you really are that in, into the game and you want to learn all about the good and the bad of it and, and what it's like to be a, a snooker pro that's why we're doing it not many people would choose to do it mm. but if, you know <laughs> you can pick up a lot of information yeah. by, by just watching I think part of the reason it's taken him what five, six, seven years to come through and be a, a kind of top class player he is now is the fact that he's from Belgium, lives in Belgium, I think it's, <coughs> I think it's Mechelen or somewhere, he's uh, somewhere mm. around there. Um, he literally doesn't have any other good players to play against. So I think it's taken. That's probably a big reason why it's taken him seven, eight years to be cut because he was a good player, but he, he didn't have a game. He could just pop balls, and I remember him playing Stephen Maguire at a Crucible debut, and he was a bit all over the place. But he, you could see that the, the, the raw tools were there. Um, so it's good that he's, mm. he's now the finished article, but he's getting there. He's won the China Championship, that's what everybody's going to say, you know, so far. That's the highlight of his career, and rightly so. But we've seen him absolutely destroy Joe Trump in the Champion of Champions in 51 minutes. But it's not the first time he's done that to a, an absolutely top-class player. What happened in Northern Ireland yeah, Murphy? Well, he, he beat Sean Murphy 4-0, and it, it's one of those very <coughs> rare matches where I honestly don't think Sean Murphy had a chance in any of the frames. And that's you always get a chance at snooker, that's what you're always told, you will get a chance. Um, so he's done it on more than one occasion, so he's a pretty devastating player, and the, the potential is uh, boundless for him. And he also passed a test, didn't he, because he lost to Marco at the World Championship, Marco Fu, from 7-1 up very public defeat and you know that that would really have hurt but he's bounced back from it immediately and he's obviously taken the, pos the positives from it and you know he's, he won sort of like nine deciders in a row this season something yeah, like that. Yeah, won nine. That was the last yeah. one he lost a decider. Yeah. That was so that's market. impressive. That's impressive. Um, we shall continue. Have you, got to, have you got to leave us Alan or are you you're hanging no, on? I'll be, I'll you're hanging on. Thanks, okay. Um, I don't know who's listening. We'll, we'll go back to yours Phil. Okay. We'll, uh, you pick one Alan from Phil's um, list. Number one please. <coughs> Paul Gibson. My God. <laughs> You thought Francois Ellis was obscure. Well, he, I know what happened to him. I played him um, first uh, match of uh, one of the seasons, about the '86 season. But then he had this this thing where he got an injury on a on a roller coaster, didn't he? Which kind of ended his career just about. Neck injury. It was a good player. I don't know how good he was. Thinking about it, got a neck injury on it. But he was was that one of the events, wasn't it? It happened. Yeah, I think it was. The reason I mentioned him was because, well. He's from Nottingham as well, originally. And of course, the other player with a neck injury from Nottingham is Anthony Hamilton, who's, who's playing in this tournament. So there is a bit of a, a link there. But how unlucky was that? Yeah, he was a perfectly healthy individual, reasonable player, you know. I think he went to be a, a policeman afterwards, actually. But anyway, all, all of a sudden, his life like that was completely changed by some sort of random, random uh, event that he had no control over whatsoever. When it happened? It was either in Blackpool or Morecambe. It was either one or the other. Yeah, yeah. Which ride do we know? I don't know. I don't know. I won't be going on it. <laughs> no, I don't think anyone should by the sounds of it. Okay. Um, Phil, you choose one to five. I'll go two. Well, you would have written about this man a lot when you were writing for the Grimsby Telegraph, Dean Reynolds. Dean Reynolds, well. <coughs> Whitewashed in a final by Steve Davis. A real hard nut to play. And this is no criticism of Dean whatsoever but I have to say he was involved in the worst final I've ever seen <laughs> that 89 British Open final against Tony Mio 
it was a really, really, really poor match. Um, but I mean, he had a very, very good career, really good. And well, he, a, sorry, he played him again, didn't he, at the Crucible, shortly after, and was warm for slow play. But but Tony wasn't. That was I thought at the time. I mean, I, I thought that was really unfair. It's debatable whether Dean should have been warned for slow play or not. But what wasn't debatable is that if you're going to warn one, you've got to warn them both because they were equally slow. So that, that was a bit unfair. He but cried, he, didn't he, after that? He did, he did, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the, the other one, of course, the, the other great moment he was involved in, which I'll never forget, I think it was in a, a UK Championship in an early round, and he was playing Tony Chappell from Wales. And uh, he got into trouble because he was <laughs> at, the, at the table while uh, 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 sitting on his chair, but sorry, uh, asked. Chapel was at the table reading a newspaper. <laughs> it was. It was a Sunday morning. He was reading the Sunday paper, and he um, he obviously thought Tony Chapel was slow. So there's kind of irony in all that, really, that he ended up getting done for it. But he did. Yeah, he was reading the paper. Uh, I first bumped into him uh, when Junior Pop Black, the first year I was in it, and there were some good players in that, and he won it. it was, uh, Dino Kane came over, John Parrott, and a guy called Tony Parr, who was down from. Uh, Exeter, some real good players, uh, but he won it. And uh, he, to be honest, he was the best player, best player on the show, better than John, and certainly better than myself and Dean Dino at the time. Uh, and I always thought he was a good player as a professional. You know, uh, I didn't always get on great with him, I have to say. But um, you know, he was a, a very, a very good and very underrated player. And he was a lot like you, Alan, in the sense that when he came to angles and. Uh, the tactical side of the game, he was really shrewd, and that's why he was so hard to beat. Well, to get into the top 16 in that area, you've got to be a very, very good player. Yeah, I, I kind of missed him as, as a top player. He was kind of going down as I turned pro, but I remember playing him once. I think it was actually in Thailand, because I remember being on a flight and he told me he was going to beat me. That's <laughs> 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 actually true. <laughs> he had a couple of sherbets, you know, so he was... Uh, he was that was that, and, and I, I was only a kid, I was only 20 or something, 21. But did he beat you? I don't think he did, actually. <laughs> I don't think he did. You know he did. No, 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 I don't. You know he did, because I think he had a couple of drinks before the night before the match as well. Yeah. So, um, he, but he, <clears throat> I'll tell you one thing he did have that he was playing for me, he had talent. Yeah, yeah, lots of talent. Yeah. He maybe didn't use it in the best <coughs> way, sometimes. I don't really know, yes. but he certainly, again, a bit like Luca, you know, in the modern day, but he, he, the tools that he, you know, he could have been a real, real good player. And when you live in when you live in Britain, you know, you know Grimsby, it's a, a big fishing port, or at least mm. it was, and you know about the town, but I think people the world over don't appreciate, it's quite a small place, and yet what a hotbed of snooker it was. Mm. In 1975, they produced the British junior champion, Mike Hallett, the English amateur champion, Sid Hood, and the world amateur champion, Ray Edmonds. Now, for three different players to win those titles, mm. to go from one small place. Extraordinary. And then, of course, Dean came through, who was a fine player, and plenty of others as well. Stuart Carrington, this year, made uh, three centuries in a row in the World Championship, which is uh, pretty, pretty funny impressive. Enough, funny you mention Stuart Carrington. Mm. Last time I seen Dean Reynolds was at the English Institute of Sport up in Sheffield. And uh, I was playing Stuart Carrington, and Dean came with him to watch the game. And uh, that was the last time I seen him anyway, it was uh, six, seven years ago. Mm. But uh, it was a good play. And from a newspaper point of view, he was absolutely excellent because he gave great quotes and, mm. you know, it was always a story there. So I have to thank him for that because he was, uh, he was tremendous with me when I was doing the local paper. Let's go back to your list, Phil. OK. Uh, what have we got left? What okay. numbers? Right, we've got. Like um, what can possibly, what yeah. can possibly follow Francois Ellis and no, no, Paul the, Gibson? The, the, <laughs> the two, the two players are left. Neither of them are obscure. Uh, number four or number five? We'll have number four. 
Eddie Charlton. Eddie Charlton, okay. Well, <laughs> my story about Eddie Charlton, and I may have even said this before, but I was told a story by, I think it was Dennis Taylor, that he, every car journey he ever went on, he checked <laughs> his, his oil and his tyre pressure and his water on every journey. But I'm not just talking about, um, you know, if he'd going to travel 300 miles. If he went over to the news agents and got a paper, he would have to check the oil and water and everything again before he'd drive it back to his house. Um, which kind of shows you that he's... Fastidious, of, I think the word yeah, is. Yeah, yeah that's the Meticulous, word. maybe yeah, Meticulous word. Uh, to the point of, um, uh, well, he's making all these <coughs> safety checks. That was the kind of guy he was, you know, he was... Um, Even in his life, safety play was important. Absolutely. <laughs> it's really, really interesting you say that because I've seen him in action. He was known, or somebody told me, he was the most fastidious packer of a case you've ever seen in your life. And on one occasion, he came into the press room and he was sort of putting some stuff away in his case because he was going off somewhere else. And so I sort of made a point of sort of walking over. And this case was just pristine. I mean, everything was just perfectly in place. So obviously, a bit of an obsessive, mm. an obsessive mind, maybe. Yeah. Mm. I played him at the Crucible when it was hard because uh, he wasn't as good a player as he once was. And, and I was on the way out, but I had a horribly hard game with him. And he used to be moaning and groaning, <laughs> swearing under his breath, calling me all the names. It was like Merv Hughes at cricket, and you're sledging you. Um, ultimately, he wasn't quite good enough in the end. He couldn't. But, you know, at that point in his, in his life, but it was a horrible match. I couldn't wait to get it over with. I didn't know mm. there were no breaks. Everything went, all the balls went awkward in every frame. And he moaned and grounded throughout the whole match. But I actually had a lot of respect for him. You know, that was kind mm. of all on the table, off the table. He was, he was, uh, he was, he was a good guy. Yeah, a couple of things. He, I actually remember sitting in the balcony in the crucible on the right-hand table. Is that table one, going down the steps into the right? Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think it is, anyway. He played JP there and JP beat him 10-0. I remember actually sitting in the balcony watching it. Another brief World Championship story about Eddie, a good pal of mine, Paul McPhillips, didn't ever get to the Crucible, but he lost. It was two matches from the Crucible he played Les Dodd. Les Dodd beat him 10-9 in the black to play Eddie Charlton to get to the Crucible, and Eddie didn't turn up. So one of my best mates has effectively lost 10-9 in the black to get to the Crucible, and he never, ever got there. But it, that's true, Eddie was the 1732 seed at the Colonies yes. and he never turned up for whatever reason, I'm not that sure. There's one more thing there, is that he, um, the, obviously Pop Black as a kid, it was always on, uh, I, do you know, I don't even know which day, I think it was a Thursday night, but anyway, it was 9 o'clock and you weren't meant to know who won it, a bit like the Bake Off, you know, someone used to, used to leave. <laughs> they didn't tweet it in those days. They didn't tweet it, no, but you, you could, you know, it would, the word got out who won it. And, but the word got out this year in particular that there'd been 100 break made, and it was Eddie, you know, and I still remember the break, 110. And you knew it was coming, and then, you, as it, isn't it strange? You absolutely could not go out that night. Yeah. I wanted to watch that break of 110 of any chance, because the centuries on the television were... Mm, that's a cool uh, thing in Portland. Yeah, really Black sort of hard things. to... Um, well, you never saw it, basically. Um, and you can still think, still see that yeah. break. I've seen it on YouTube, and, yeah. uh, and brilliant. You know, to think that he could do such a thing was, uh, you know, going back. Shows you what a good player he was, you know. He made a, he played a one-frame tournament, he's made a century. I mean, you know, it, it, He made the first one at the Crucible, I think. First century. That he one, did, don't he know. did. Mm. And he also came really close to being world champion. Almost beat Ray mm -hmm. Reardon, yeah. so you know, he, for his time, he was a very good player. But Neil's right about his language. I mean, oh, it's absolutely uh, you are unrepeatable. Oh. <laughs> uh, with today's rules about swearing at the table, had they been in place then, but they'd thrown the book at him. He'd have wiped off the national debt of Australia with the fines. <laughs> I should say, Alan has left. It's a bit like um, on the Clive Anderson show when the Bee Gees stormed out. It's a little bit like that. He's just gone without a word. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Morris McManus. I think it was all those Francois Ellis anecdotes that did him in. Anyway, um, so I've got a couple left. So I've got one, three, four, and five. One. One, again, not a player, but someone that uh, everyone of a certain age will remember very, very well, Ted Lowe. Is anyone on your list actually a player or not? Um, Dean Reynolds was, I think. Oh, yeah, sorry, Luca Brussell. Yeah. <laughs> <Luca Purcell. laughs> uh, Ted Lowe, for those who don't know, um, was the, well, the main BBC commentator for basically forever until he retired. He started in the black and white days. He used to sit in the audience and whisper. That's why they called him Whispering Ted. And in the 80s, he was probably as well-known, his voice certainly was as well-known as a lot of the players. I remember, I remember going to one of the early events in China, um, one of Barry's events, and Ted was invited along with his wife, whose name I'd forgotten, actually. Jean, uh, was it? Yeah, Jean, that's mm-hmm. right. And we were at this big function, and it was really, you know, they looked at after us beautifully, but there was, there was no sign of any drink there. And Ted enjoyed a glass of wine, yeah. you know, it's safe to say, yeah. as, as, as we all do. But um, So he was there, Ted, and I haven't seen him look so miserable. And he was sitting <laughs> on the same table as me, and... He said, you right to the as well, there's no wine, there's no drink here, I've, I've asked, there's a, there's, a, there's a problem with that. So anyway, we managed to get uh, the, the person in charge, uh, and someone had a word in his ear and he'd had a word with the, the staff there, and uh, a bottle of white wine came from somewhere, and Chris immediately he's delighted. So they put a glass next to uh, Ted and Jean, poured quite a small measure into the glass, and then the guys tried to take the bottle away and put it back in the cupboard. And at which point this thing where Ted has grabbed hold of the bottle and there's like a tug of war thing, like the enormous turnip where the, the waiter's trying to take the bottle back and Ted is not letting go of that bottle for any money in the world. And Ted won, he snatched it back, put it on the table like that, and he had a vice-like grip on it. And yeah. needless to say, there was nothing left at the end. But, you know... Quite I mean, right, I, quite right too. Yeah. so, but it was like, so you can have a small amount of wine, but that was not going to... And he was really... It made, he was, immediately he... Um, became much happier <laughs> Ted and I are both TV commentators but I think that's where the you know the sort of uh, that's where the common bond is, is, well, you, is you, don't, you don't drink it's <laughs> sort of broken yeah, I don't drink exactly that's the but I think I did have one thing in common with Ted is that he revered absolutely revered the best player of his era Joe Davis he was fulsome in his praise of Davis any time he had a conversation with him now, obviously, now Stephen Hendry's retired, I can quite rightly say, you know, Stephen Hendry was my favourite player. I mean, I just thought he was phenomenal, and I always will do. But when you spoke to Ted, he was absolutely convinced he wouldn't have it any other way that Joe Davis was the greatest player who ever played the game. Well, he's entitled to that opinion. Yeah. Of course, he was a great player. Uh, when I first um, played, uh, well, I, again, I played in Pop, Junior Pop Black, and, and Ted would, would have been commentating on that, I think, but... I played um, at the Hexagon, it was one of my first TV appearances and he was commentating on the match and he made a point of coming up before the game, writing down a lot of stuff because obviously your notes were not available then <laughs> um, and it was quite difficult to find that information, you wanted to know about me, my family, my friends who I'm with and all this sort of stuff so he was quite thorough in that, I mean he didn't know the game particularly well but he's remembered for the voice and um, you know the, the era wasn't he and, but he was quite meticulous in getting information that maybe members of the general public would be keen to find out that it was not always snooker related. And there was an a incident involving Ted at the Masters many, many years ago. When which, he passed out. Yeah, which might yeah. be a lesson for me and for everybody in the modern commentary gig, is that he, he was taken ill on a Saturday afternoon at the Masters semi-final and um, thankfully the frame in which he was taken ill was quite a lengthy one because it took it a while for him to be taken out of the commentary box. Uh, by the medical personnel. Rex had to prop him up. Rex yeah, Rex Williams was his co-commentator. <laughs> and, and they didn't speak for 13 minutes, neither of them. 
and there was not one single complaint. Now, what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that um, <laughs> you only get uh, told off for speaking too much, not too little. Yeah. I think I went one frame where I didn't speak for 13 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like, when, after he retired, um, I wrote a piece with Snooker Scene just about him. Uh, I think he did an interview and we just sort of wrote about that. And he sent me a handwritten note of thanks, you know, which is very classy. Yeah. I mean, these days you'd be looking to get a tweet off somebody, wouldn't yes. you? But he, like, that was very sort of old school way of, you know, doing things, I think. He, tr he was a real gentleman, and when he had people come up and ask for autographs at the Crucible, he could not have been more accommodating to them and very gracious. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll do two more. We'll do one, your last one and one more from mine. So who's your last one, Phil? My last one is, we're in Coventry, as, as you know, and he's a West Midlander and a man I, I liked a lot, actually. Dominic Dale? Because that's where he's from. Yeah. No, no, yeah. Not him. no, no, okay, no, sorry. no, 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 no. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah. You sound like Mark Williams on Twitter. <laughs> no, um, this person's name is Graham Miles, who was a, a ah. former world mm. championship runner-up uh, and a winner of Pod Black. Yeah, my first ever professional match was against him, and it, uh, it, was, uh, it was one of those events it was in Stockton on Tees, and I can't remember the, the, the uh, name of the event. It was a big pro uh, tournament, and I played Grand Mars there. Uh, and he beat me. He was, you know, a really good player, Grand Mars. And he took me out afterwards to a casino. I had a great time. I was only about 19. I found him a really good, good, good bloke actually. And because he knew everyone at the time, he was kind of high up in the game. But he was my first ever opponent. And you know, for anyone who thinks that guys like that were not really good players. Uh, and you believe nowadays that everything's much better than it was then. He was a tremendously good player and, and sort of classy sort of guy as well. And he could do something of a quality level at snooker that the generation now probably couldn't do. He made the vast majority of his income even then um, by playing exhibitions. And I've seen him on numerous occasions build a century break and sort of a third of the way through stop, tell a joke, which was very funny, <laughs> get to about 60 odd stop, tell another joke, and then go on to make a, a three-figure contribution. It, really brilliant in exhibitions. The other thing, of course, technically, he was one of his own, wasn't he? Because he was so left-eyed sighting. Yeah. It, was, it was extraordinary. One thing sticks in my mind, it's probably not that interesting a story, but I played him once, and, and it was a crucial stage of the match. I was about to win, and I was 63 in front with five reds left. And he took one look at the score before he came to the table, and then he never looked back up at the score, and he, he knew what which colours he could take. He could take a blue and a pink, and he never even he never took one sort of gaze at the scores as people do. We all do. Think now, look, we need to double check this. And he cleared up, and and he and the won the frame by one point. But I thought it was clever that he just he didn't didn't bother all that. People do it, don't they? They, yes. they just can't help themselves but double and treble check to make sure they've made a, a mathematical error. But uh, yeah, he was he was a great player. Clive Everton, who knew Graham really well, always said that one of his faults was that he always thought he was 90 minutes from everywhere, when in <laughs> fact he wasn't. And I think he does hold the record for turning up late for most matches. I think he played a match against Jim Medicroft where they both turned up late, so it was 1 1, and neither of <laughs> the ball hadn't been potted. <laughs> well, I think I've told this story before, but I had, to, I had to ring him up to do one of these Where Are They Now pieces, Samwell Snooker Centre, which he, which he ran. And I rang, and he answered the phone, but he denied being Graham Miles. He right. decided I'm not Graham Miles. It was, it was Graham Miles. Mm. I couldn't recognise him. He said, don't worry, I'll, I'll give you his, his mobile number. So I wrote this number down, and it was basically just a random number that he just basically thought of. Because when I rang it, it was just some woman in another part of the country. Yeah. <laughs> he just is kind of, I don't know, he just decided to have a bit of a wind-up, I suppose. But I got him in the end, but it was 
A little bit odd. I think you got involved in Didn't he have a dispute with Alex in an altercation which kind of blows at an exhibition once? Unusually, he had an altercation with Alex, yeah. Mm. <laughs> but I think he actually punched him. No, I think he did, yeah. 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 I, think, I think Alex, yeah, I think Alex uh, interjected a swear word in a sentence that uh, described Graham as being follically challenged. <laughs> Right. Okay. <laughs> well, I think we know they've got the picture. Yeah. Right? We, 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 a good we picture. Punched him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I've got three. We'll do one more. I've got three, four, or five. Four. Okay. Well, this is another Midlander who he no longer plays, but we see him at most events. Martin Clark, who now he was a former top sixteen player, now is one of the tournament directors. Very hard working one as well. Great bloke. Great bloke. And I had a misfortune to play him. I think four <laughs> tournaments in a row one year. And I, he beat me in every one, and at that time I couldn't bear him, you know. I didn't know him at all, I knew he was a nice guy. He, he beat me in, in almost every tournament, he was very cool, and I used to call him Leicester for some reason at that point. Yeah, I think it was because of his diminutive size, Leicester Piggott. Yeah, Leicester Piggott, yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. Um, a really good player, actually. Um, I only managed to beat him once, and he beat me a, a lot of times. And as I say, he was, he was sort of one of these uh, quiet sort of assassins, really. Very, very good player, and uh, his career ended a little bit early. Neck trouble again, same thing. Not a roller coaster, but probably from playing, I guess. It ended with him still a very, very good player because he spent a number of seasons in the top 16. But he was uncomplaining and now he's one of the best uh, backstage people in snooker. He's a tournament director and does a wonderful job. There's only one thing I can <coughs> complain about Martin Clark. He's a Wolves fan. Apart from <laughs> that, everything else is good. <laughs> I've never heard him or seen him get annoyed with anybody or lose his temper. He may have done, but I've never seen it. Yeah, He's one of these guys who's very, very even-tempered. Who knows what he's like you know, in his private life, but he seems to be really... Um, you couldn't really imagine having a crossword. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and he made sure. the most extraordinary television debut I think anybody's ever made. It was at the Trentham Gardens at Stoke, which is very close to where he lives in Sedgley in the West Midlands up and coming pro and he played Dennis Taylor now Dennis wasn't too far <coughs> removed then from being world champion and he beat Dennis 5-0 it was a massive story it was on RTV I remember massive story he had the old uh, poodle haircut didn't he at the time that's right so, yeah it was, uh, it was the 80s yeah. though so. yeah, yeah. Mm. he does hit balls now because I have, if you get to a tournament early enough when uh, the table fitters are there he gets his cue out I think well, Martin's going to have a game and he just basically does the, the mm. testing of the table so he does hit a few balls now but, literally yeah. only that but it's good that someone doing that job has been a player I yeah. think he understands what players are going through and what their needs are because yeah. I think he was like player liaison first and then he sort of stepped up to John Mike Ganley in the tournament office someone like him and Gary Wilkinson is involved with World Snooker I think it's brilliant because their life has, has been snooker and um, you know, it's good that they can uh, put something back in and they're able to get something out of it because they understand the players, those guys. He's got another talent as well, apart from potting balls and from running tournaments now very efficiently. I've never <coughs> known anybody who can eat hot curries. Oh, no, yeah. oh he's Vindaloo's all sorts, yeah. Every credit for An that. exhibition almost, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I've not seen it, but I've heard all about yeah. it. He's still making total clearances, just in a different context. <laughs> yeah. And on that terrible gag... Uh, thank you, Neil. Thank you, Phil and Alan, who's, who's not here, but Stormed thank you, Tim. Stormed off, fat enough. And I'm going to press stop, and now, then we'll say all the things we really think about those people. Sports Social Podcast Network.